Good morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Chris Hodge. I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to bring God's word to you today, as you picked up from the reading of the text. We are talking about idolatry. Now, I gotta be honest, as a kid, whenever people would talk about idolatry, I got a little nervous because in my childhood bedroom, on a shelf, actually on two shelves, were lined up a bunch of little cast images. Many of them were of a guy throwing a baseball like this, and the other half of them were of a football guy like this. And every time I heard about idolatry, I thought, am I in trouble? I have all of these little plastic idols of football and baseball players lining my shelves from uh, my years in Little League and Mighty Mites and Midgets, which is what we called, I'm sure they don't call it that anymore, uh, little uh, young guy football where we uh, learned what a concussion was from an early age. Uh, it was great fun, but I always got nervous. I'm like, well, I have formed images up in my room. Am I, am I, am I, am I an idolater? Well, I suppose it, it is about how much weight and, and value. Uh, but of course, uh, that's a simplistic understanding of idolatry. Today, as we look at this text, I want us to look at three things. First of all, we need to ask the question, what is idolatry? Secondly, we want to consider the lure of idolatry, and lastly, we want to see the answer to idolatry. So first of all, what is idolatry? Now, of course, the idea of idolatry is uh, very crucial in the Old Testament. It's crucial for a couple different reasons. First of all, uh, because in the Ten Commandments, which you'll find in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5, you'll see that it is listed as the uh, second commandment. The first is you shall have no other gods before you. Second, you shall not make an idol for yourself. You know, in other words, they should not form an image of something uh, in the heavens, that is birds that fly or something that crawls on the earth, that's the animals, or of man. And you should not worship it because there is only one God. As a matter of fact, the, the reason attached to that in the Ten Commandments is that God is a jealous God. In other words, not that, that God is uh, uh, romantically concerned that uh, Israel is going to be attracted to, to other gods, but it is that he is jealous is idolatry. And so it's there in the Ten Commandments. But why is it so high up in the Ten Commandments? If we were writing the Ten Commandments today, we might, we might not consider that one of the top three, but it is. Why? Because the children of Israel, when they left a world of slavery, were leaving a land of idols in Egypt. They were surrounded by images that people considered to be gods. And they were moving from Egypt into the land of Canaan, which was a land of idols. And so they were surrounded by a multiple choice of supposed deities. And God wants it to be clear to them. There is only one God. And the rest is a violation of their relationship with that God. So that is what idolatry is. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than God. That's what it is. Of course, when we think just of images, I think we narrow it down too much. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, when writing to the church in Colossae, he makes the following comment in chapter 3, verse 5 of Colossians. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
He says covetousness, which is greediness, is actually idolatry. That's fascinating. Because if we go back to that top 10 list that God gave the people of Israel, covetousness was number 10. And what Paul is saying, essentially, any of the violations of God's law is a way of showing that you are honoring and following, submitting to something other than God and what God has told you. And I think it's helpful for us living in the 21st century to think about greediness as an actual form of idolatry. It helps us understand that idolatry is when anything that might be in and of itself a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. That is a good way to understand idolatry. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. Now, looking at this text, we need to see the lure of idolatry. Now, I know the the text is not suggesting that idolatry is attractive in any way. Uh, In this text, we see uh, a broad and an interesting condemnation of idolatry but in these words I think that we can see what the author is addressing in in terms of the attraction of idolatry the first thing we would see in verse 9 and 10 is that idolatry or an idol it looks like something that can give you significance but in the end leads only to meaninglessness Let's read 9 and 10 again. All unfashioned idols are nothing. That word can be translated meaningless. And the things they delight in do not profit, or you could translate that worthless. Their witness neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? The first thing we see here is that obviously someone who spends all of the time crafting carefully an idol, a process that the writer here explains in detail. The one who casts the iron over the fire. He even describes the sweat pouring off of the maker's face, the, the need for water, the fatigue that comes from the work, draws out exactly what he wants to make. He sits there planing the wood in the heat of the day, and he makes it just so. And he says, what are these people against? They're attempting to define what makes their life worth living. The idol is an attempt to construct an idea or perhaps a theory that will give you comfort in times of need, that will assure you in times of fear. And so the, uh, the one who makes the idol is trying to make something that will give them meaning and significance and that's ultimately what idolatry is all about it is an attempt for us to make for ourselves something that provides meaning and security in our life now i doubt very seriously that many of you have a workshop in which you are crafting your graven images instead we have 401ks right and, uh, and, and for, you know, I'm, I've been there, I'm, I'm right there. If you look at it daily and fret over its uh, minuscule ups and downs, or some days not so minuscule, if you sit there and project how secure you will be both now and in the future as you look at the balance in the account, then I am taking something good that's a great tool and I am making it ultimate thing. I am looking to that balance 
and my account as something that gives me meaning or significance. I'm looking to it to provide security. As a matter of fact, the broad program that most people are on, we actually call social security. But is it secure? Is it? Yeah, I know. Everybody's like, less and less, right? You know, is it secure? Of course, that's a way of showing. This is where I'm putting weight. I think it will provide significance and meaning and security. That's always the goal. But of course, our money isn't the only thing that we actually make an ultimate thing. There are other things in our world. I have grown up. Uh, my generation has grown up in the explosion of technology. I mean, I was there whenever they decided that a personal computer was a good thing. I was watching the Super Bowl when Apple Computer decided to free us from the overlords of the PC, right? If anybody remembers that, it's so ironic because I've been a Mac guy for years and you can't do anything they don't let you do. So in terms of rules and structure, we, we, I don't know that the PC had a monopoly on that. But of course, every time a new machine comes out, we say that, that will finally, that'll open the door, that'll enable me to finally find significance. That's why every year, whenever they release the latest very minor upgrade to whatever phone you choose to carry in your pocket, there literally are millions of people who watch the announcement. Why? Why? You know, I, I'm curious. Over the last six years, what have they added that was interesting? You know, there's now another megapixel of clarity in the camera. Do you even know what that is? You know, it now has, it now has AI that makes the pictures look clearer. Do you really want that? You know, is that, is that helpful? But yet we watch it by the millions because we're sure that if we have the latest device that somehow our life will improve. We're not exactly sure how, but they keep telling us it will. And if you're young, you know it'll improve simply by the social cred when you pull out that brand new version of the Galaxy i one. Maybe that's what gives me meaning and significance. But here's what happens to me every time I buy a new piece of technology. Confession time, I buy them all. Uh, and I have, I have discovered through my own uh, attempts, it never makes my life any better. Now, now that I have a grandchild, to be honest, I'm just glad to see her picture anywhere. You know, if you can put her picture on a flip phone, that's cool with me, right? You know, but it never does anything for me. As a matter of fact, usually the day or two after I get a new device, whether it's a laptop or whether it's a phone, I usually have a pretty big letdown. I, I always think, why did I spend so much money on that? It, it does exactly what the old one did. That, that recently happened to me. I passed my, this is the way it works in my family, I passed my laptop to my wife uh, because they came out with a faster one. And uh, I bought the faster one and I was doing something that required a lot of, a lot of uh, memory and, and, and very fast processor. And, you, and that's where I was just sure that the 10 core processor was gonna really bring it home for me. And it took exactly the same amount of time to do what I normally do as it did on the old computer and yet we keep doing it, right? Because we're just sure the next thing will do the trick. I have heard more about chat, I don't even know the name of it, chat, y'all know what it is. This AI engine that supposedly will write better sermons than I come up with, <laughs> if, 
If I just taught it the right sermons like Martin Luther and John Calvin, it would just save everybody a lot of time. Uh, I think it's obvious I don't do that, uh, right? But people are obsessed with this, right? AI technology. It's either going to help the world or destroy the world, depending on which movie maker you, know, you follow, right? But we're just sure that if we harness the technology, that our lives will be better that it will give us meaning and significance. You know, old school, people used to have on the back of their car a bumper sticker that said, he who dies with the most toys wins, right? You don't see that very much anymore. It's been replaced essentially by this sticker, he who has the most experiences wins. And so instead of putting our weight in the stuff of this world, we put our weight into seeing every interesting place in the world and we're sure that if we do, that will give us meaning and significance. I'm not saying that the seeing places in this world is bad. If you're there seeing the beauty of the Lord as revealed in creation all over the world, that's wonderful. But if I make that my ultimate aim, if I think that will give me significance and meaning, then I've become an idolater. Do you see the lure of it? But what everybody knows who's chased, whether the adventures or the toys or the technology or the money or the cast images, they all know that at the end of the day, they're left with emptiness. And that's why they have to keep chasing. See, that's the irony. We pursue it. It doesn't reward us. And so we think, well, maybe I need to pursue it more. Maybe I, I need to invest more time, more money. And again, meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. And we know that intuitively, but the promise is always there if you try a little bit harder. And in essence, we become slaves to those things that have become ultimate things to us. There is no joy. There is no freedom. There is no meaning. At the end, we are exactly as this passage describes, all who fashions idols are nothing. We become less significant. We have less meaning because we fill our lives with things that cannot hold water. Secondly, I want us to consider as we look at the lure of idolatry that it, it makes us feel like we're in control. Certainly idolatry does that. It makes us feel like we're in control, but in the end, it's simply violating creation order. Look with me at verse 19. It's fascinating how it says it. Uh, it says, no one considers nor is there knowledge or discernment to say half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I, shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? That's an interesting word, abomination. Uh, that's a great word, isn't it? An abomination is a violation of God's created creation or order. It is a violation of the order in which God created the world. Now, let me explain that for a second. Uh, first of all, it says that this person's not even thinking. Look, I took part of the wood over from basically my fuel, and he's trying, and now I bow down to that as though it were God. And, and, and he's trying to stress the absurdity of thinking you are making a deity from the leftovers of your fuel source right? You know, can you imagine that? I don't know. This 4th of July, many of you will be grilling. How many people plan on grilling this weekend? Yes, eight of you. 
the rest of you are going hungry, I suppose, because Americans are only allowed to eat meat over fire this weekend. That's the deal. You know, that's what our, our forefathers died for, so that, we could, so that we could enjoy the freedom of barbecue. That's not true. They, they died for independence from England, right? And uh, nonetheless, we're going to celebrate that independence by grilling this weekend. Now, let's just imagine that you're out by your grill, and uh, uh, your husband is wondering what's taking you so long, and, and, you, and you bring in the plate of perfectly cooked meats of whatever, or tofu meat, or impossible meat. I mean, you all live in Colorado. None of you are eating that. Uh, but, you know, okay, there are three of you because you have an allergy. But it's, so you bring in this perfectly cooked platter of meats, and then they wonder, what, what's keeping mom? And they look out, and you've taken the propane tank and made it an eternal flame. You just have it shooting flame up into the air, and you're on your knees. And, and you're thinking, I want to worship this fuel source with which I just cooked the barbecue. Now do you see the silliness of it? We would say, uh, I think there's something wrong with mom, right? And, uh, and dad, of course, says, well, the meat is hot, so we're eating it first, and then we'll check on what's going on with mom. That's the way that's going to go down, right? So, but here the writer is trying to show us that it's ridiculous to think that from our own hands we create a deity from a fuel source. And he calls it an abomination because it is absolutely turning the created order upside down. For those of you who don't remember how God created the world, quick reminder, we mention it a lot here. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created the heavens and the earth in a the abs absolute pinnacle of his creation is humanity, male and female, made in his image. And you know what he told them? He said, you have sway you are my uh, ass assistant manager the vice regent to use a technical term over all that i have created your job is to oversee all of creation on my behalf to reflect my glory in the way that you manage this created order that i made and so now are you beginning to see why it's an abomination for man who is the vice regent, the not just assistant manager, but the, but the co-ruler of all creation, to actually take a piece of creation and subject themselves to it as though it were God and they were its servant. Do you see? It turns it upside down. We are supposed to be using creation for the glory of God not manufacturing creation as something to fall down and worship. And here he says, yes, you think you're in charge yourself from steward of creation to servant of creation. And he says that completely reverses the order. Thirdly, the lure of idolatry. Whenever we give ourselves to something, something that is a good thing, that becomes an ultimate thing, we always think that it's bringing enlightenment. But in reality, it is a self-deception. I love this at the end of our passage in verse 20. Notice what it says. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. 
And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? And I love that passage. It's very insightful about human nature. You see, we put weight and significance in man-made things, and we say that will make us an enlightened individual. That means that we will have more insight into the mysteries of this world. We will have more understanding of who we are and what our purpose is. In other words, we fall down to these idols because we think in the end it will make us know more about the world and ourselves. And at the end, the writer says, what we're left with is ashes. We simply have nothing. We have the remains of that thing that has been burnt all the way down. He says that ultimately they are deluded. Instead of enlightenment, instead of becoming, let's put it as clearly as we can, instead of becoming smarter, we've become dumber. Instead of knowing more, we know less. And what's worse, he says, that we can't even admit it. He says, who can say? Referring to the idol that he might hold in his right hand. This is a lie. Why is that? It's a sunk cost problem. For those of you who, who love sunk costs, here it is. When we've invested a lot into something, we have a tendency to double down on the thing that we've invested in, even if we know that it has no value. Why? Because there's something in us that cannot admit that we've wasted our time and energy. We can't admit that we've wasted our money. It's called the sunk, sunk cost fallacy. In other words, we get caught up. We think, well, if I just invest more, then, then I'll finally see a gain on it. And, and, and the vast majority of the time, no, you're just gonna lose more money. That's a sunk cost fallacy. But the idolater, he doesn't even see the trap he's in. He says, I made this idol to give me meaning and significance. And I know as I hold it in my right hand that it doesn't. I know it's a lie, but I can't admit that. I have to double down. Have you ever noticed that, let's not talk about other people, let's talk about ourselves, that we get really defensive when, defensive when someone touches on one of our idols? I mean, you can have a pleasant conversation with somebody. You can talk, I mean, we start with the weather. Boy, hadn't the weather been nice? Isn't it, isn't it great while the rest of the United States is under a, a, a screen of smoke or 100 degrees that it was like 75 and sunny here yesterday, right? And we talk about that and we feel good about ourselves. And, and then we ask how the kids are doing. And, and oh, they're, they're fine as far as kids go or... Or, or then we say, how's the job going? And it's fine, my boss is still an idiot, right? We kind of go through, we kind of go through the list. And then we say, did you, did you ever decide how you were going to distribute that extra money you got? Pause here in town, and, and then all of a sudden, it's like, whoosh, it's like the personality changes. You have no right to ask me about that. That's my business, not yours. That's code for, I'm giving nothing away, right? In other words, you've touched on something I'm sensitive about. That money has now become more than just dollars in an account. It's become a significance. It's become meaning. It's going to give me security, and you touch on it, and boy, will you get bitten, you know? Some of us do that with people. Some of us do that with our jobs. Some of us do that uh, with our future plans, and we take these good things, and we make them ultimate things, and it becomes evident whenever somebody presses on it and we simply cannot admit that we have created a lie that we hold in our right hand because we're so determined to double down 
And maybe then it'll give us significance. That's very hard for us, isn't it? It's especially hard when that thing we've made an ultimate thing is a person. When it is, let's say, the spouse we would like to have, even though we have been single our whole life, but we're just If we had that other person, then that would give us significance and meaning and weight. Or perhaps we say, if I only had a child or that second child or that third child, which is a, both those things are perfectly good things to want, but all of a sudden it moves beyond a good thing to an ultimate thing, and I have no meaning, I have so no significance unless I have that child, or let's take it another step, unless that child succeeds at the level that I think they should succeed, or they perform at the level that I think they, they should, and instead of my child being a place where I steward all that God has taught me, shown me, and given me, that child becomes an ultimate reason for my existence. My meaning, which is why it undoes me so much when they have a bad day or whatever it may be. Do you know that we can make idols out of anything? Because we take these good things, which are perfectly fine, but we make them ultimate things. They become our God, the thing we look to for meaning and significance. So that's the lure of idolatry. We see it in this text. But it would be a depressing sermon here this weekend if we ended with that. So let's talk about the answer for idolatry. Now, uh, forgive me, the next couple points I'm going to get a little philosophical, and I just want you to follow me. Idolatry is an attempt by human beings to assign meaning and significance to something. Why? Because we have been created to have meaning and significance. We, we are created to have value. And to have confidence. That's the way God created the world. But, but let's back up for a second. How do we know what the truth of our significance and meaning is? Right now, we live in a world where we are pretty sure, at least listening to the culture, that every person determines their own truth. And in that truth, they find significance. Okay? I haven't, I haven't looked it up this week. But if that's the case, then it means there's not one truth, but potentially, what, five and a half, six billion truths? Is that right? How many people live in the world today? Somebody Google search that for me and tell me. I think it's some, what? Nine billion. Thank you, man in the middle. I appreciate that. So not one truth, there are nine billion truths. If every person determines in their own heart and mind what is truth and therefore what does give significance and meaning, then there are nine billion truths. That's kind of confusing. And to be honest, those truths contradict one another, left, right, and center. So is one truth truthier than the other? You see the problem we have. Left to ourselves, we have no truth. We have chaos and anarchy in terms of the idea of truth. The reality is, if there is truth, it is beyond us. It's not going to come out of ourselves or our reason. It is, going to, it is going to come from someone who made the world, someone who made human beings the way they were. It has to come from outside of us. This is a basic tenet, that truth is not something we find inside of us, but it's something that must be located outside of us. Now, philosophers have been talking literally for thousands of years, how can you know truth? How do you know it? 
How do you know it when you see it? You know, how can we find truth? Well, the answer of the Bible is that you won't in and of create this beautiful, perfect world. He did create the, create the capstone of his creation, humanity, made in his image, male, to reject dependence upon God, to reject a constant flow of truth from God to us, and we decided we would do it on our own independently. And because of that, the fall happened, and human beings fell from that beautiful, perfect state in which they were created into a state of confusion and chaos immediately. They have uh, discord in their relationship with God, with themselves, with one another, with the world. We talked about that last week. And so where do we find truth then? If we're broken, messed up people, we have to find it outside of us. Now here's the beauty. In the Bible, we have not only the story, but the truth that God reveals to us. I know, for those of you who took comparative religion, you believe that all religion is humanity creating God in their own image. And while that may be true, for all religions, ours purports that God actually instructed us about the truth of who he was, the truth of who we are, and the truth about how we find significance, meaning, and purpose in this world. He revealed it to us. To be truthful, we weren't looking for it. We were running from it. But yet in his grace and mercy, he took idolaters and Abram's family who were worshiping all the gods of their culture, and he called them out and said, I'm going to tell you what the truth is about who I am, about who you are, and about what this world is for. And he does. And that's why we spend so much time in this book. It's not just because it has a nice weight and feel in our hand. It's because we believe it records uh, the translated truth that God has revealed to us. And that's why we spend so much time on it. Because we won't know truth unless God shows us truth. And so one, we're not going to find it in ourselves. We have to find it outside of ourselves. Uh, God does reveal himself, and we have a record of that in his word. I love it how God begins uh, this passage as he is speaking through Isaiah to the people. And uh, he says uh, in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. God said, puts it right on the line that if you can imagine a beginning to everything you see and experience in the, this world, God says, I was there. I was there before the beginning. He says, if you can imagine where in the world is this crazy world going, God says, I'll be there. I was there before the beginning. I'll be there after what you call the end. I am the beginning and the end. And I love it. He just puts it down on the bottom shelf. Besides me, there is no God. Now, of course, he's in the middle of saying, look, I can prove it a lot of different ways. I'm the only, only God who chose a people for myself. I'm the only one who can explain what's happened in the past. I'm the only one who can tell you what's going to happen in the future. And so he's explaining it all different ways in Isaiah. But here he just says it. Besides me, there is no God. And what I love it is that he says, look, if we're going to find significance and purpose, if we're going to have security in this world, we're only going to find it in him, notice what he says uh, in verse 8, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? In other words, have I not revealed this truth about myself and you and your security in the past? And you are my witnesses, 
Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. Again, he reiterates that there is no other God, but he uses this interesting expression. He says, there is no rock. Well, what, what does he mean, there is no rock? Well, here he's getting to the idea that we see in Psalm 18, verse 1 and 2. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. God says there is no place where you can be secure, where you can know it's okay, where you can find meaning and significance, but me, but in him you can. And so that's the answer to idolatry. The answer to idolatry is stop trying to make your own God. Stop doubling down in that sunk cost fallacy thinking the more you invest, the more significance you will get. It is ashes and self-delusion. Instead, recognize it, repent of it, and turn to the only rock of our salvation, God himself. Say, God, I'm sorry that I have treated. Give me confidence and security. Lord, forgive me for thinking that that relationship, uh, whether it is a future spouse or future child or a child that's more obedient, will give me meaning, for only you can give me meaning. Repent of that and say, Lord, may I find all my significance and purpose in you. And you say, well, that's a little hard. It's a little hard to abstractly think about God in this way. Well, you are very blessed because God did not stop revealing himself in Isaiah, but he continued to tell us the truth about who he was. And it culminates in the person of Jesus Christ, the Word of God who became flesh. And you say, really? It does? And I say, yes, for sure it does. Last week we looked at a beautiful passage in Matthew chapter 11 about Jesus saying, look, all you who are weary, come to me and I will give you rest. But just before that passage, we see something that's especially important for us to see if we are going to make sure that we are resting our lives on security. Verse 25 of Matthew 11. It says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. I love that. Jesus is saying, I'm thankful, Lord, that it's not because of an advanced degree or a brilliant mind that these people have figured out the truth about you, but you have revealed it to people who've received it like a little child. Verse 26, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You say, I don't, I don't know how I can actually trust and depend on God, how I can know him better. And Jesus says, the way to know him better is to know me better. Because when you know me, you know the Father. Or in his conversation with his disciples the night uh, that he was betrayed in John chapter 14. Very, a favorite passage of many people probably sitting here if this is the first time you're hearing it. Listen carefully to what Jesus is saying and not just what has perhaps become a cliche in your mind. He says, uh, goodness, it's hard to know where to start in 14. Uh, We're going to start in verse 3. Uh, Jesus says, if I go, that is, I go away from here and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. 
And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and if you have seen him, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you for so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say to me, show me the Father? Isn't that beautiful? Now, I know we get hung up. A lot of people, they hear that expression, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they hear, boy, isn't that just so exclusive? And and the answer to that is yes and no. Now, there are two kinds of exclusivity. There's like a mean exclusivity, like, you know, us four, no more men. It's a sore kind of exclusivity. There's a kind of exclusivity that says you can never come in. It's a secret club. You don't know the password. And then there's a second kind of exclusivity, which says, I want everybody in, but there's only one way in. I mean, right, if I have my little clubhouse, let's go back to our childhood. We had tree houses uh, where I grew up. Again, we were familiar with concussions. And uh, we'd have tree houses that fathers basically built to see which of their children were the strongest and would survive. And, uh, and so, inevitably, when a pack of little boys, you know, were up in a reasonably poorly built treehouse in a tree, if there were three or four of us, we made a club. And the first rule of the club is nobody else can be in the club, right? And so then you shut the little hatch, you know, for the treehouse that went to the ladder that was actually just nailed into the side of the tree, very safe, uh, right? And, and someone would come up and go, I'd like to come up. And we go, no, it's a, we have a club and you can't come in, right? Well, that, that's a bad kind of exclusivity. But if we said, sure, you can come in, and they just tried to jump up the 10 feet to the platform, they might try to, uh, you know, throw a rope over the top of the tree and get up. But, man, we were weak. That wasn't going to work. You know, if he said, I'd like to come up, and we said, you can't come up. And he says, well, I can't get in. You're exclusive. I say, well, have you tried the ladder? And he says, well, that's, that's very, very egotistical of you to think that that's the only way I can get into the treehouse. And we would just yell back down, you're stupid. <laughs> we were not nice when I was a kid at all. We're like, well, there is a way in, but you have to actually climb the ladder. It's the only way in. Now, are we being mean? by saying he has to climb the ladder, or are we just being honest to say that happens to be the only way you can get in? You see, that's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and my determination is to keep everybody out. As a matter of fact, the life of Jesus shows that he wants everyone who believes to come in. He's just saying there's only one way in. If I'm going to know the truth about God, I need to find it in the word that he has revealed. And Jesus says, I am the ultimate expression of that revealed truth. If you're going to know anything about God, you have to come through me. Which is why we make such a big deal of believing in Jesus Christ. It's because in him we finally will have access to the truth about who God is. About who we are. About what gives us significance and meaning and can give purpose to tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that for all eternity. Jesus says, I want you to find that. I want you to know him. 
but it has to start with a relationship with me. Have you started that relationship with him? Or are you still following the lure of idolatry, trying to find meaning and significance in those things which never give meaning or significance? Are you caught in that loop of self-deception but feel like you'd be embarrassed to admit that it's going nowhere? I invite you, if that's you, just take an honest look and ask the question, where is this getting me? The bald man is saying there's another way, a way that I can really know who I am and who God is and why I'm here. And it starts with giving my life to Jesus Christ in faith. A lot of others sitting here today have claimed and have, in truth, given their life to Jesus Christ. But to be honest, you haven't really thought about your relationship with him or how he is it because you have allowed yourself to chase after all the other idols that people who don't know Jesus are chasing. What a great morning to actually declare independence from those idols that control you and find true freedom through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you that you are kind and gracious to us. Lord, idolatry isn't a problem out there. It's a problem in our hearts and minds. Lord, help us be quick to see them, fast to repent of them, and determined to depend upon Jesus Christ as he reveals your truth about you, us, and this world to us. Oh, Lord, we pray that we will find that true freedom in you as we put our faith in Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.